Hey, church. Welcome back. My name is Dirk, uh, lead pastor here at Encounter. It's, uh, it's good to be together. Listen, last week we kicked off uh, this series with part one, uh, For the Love. And uh, we talked about this vertical relationship, right? That uh, we said, listen, if we could only get this thing right or do better with this thing, the love of God and accepting that in our lives, so much, maybe like 99% of the temptation around us, like wouldn't be so tempting anymore. And so we're going to continue it on uh, for the love with this kind of horizontal thing here in just a minute. But I want to come back to this somewhat unplanned introduction that I gave last week. And I said, listen, I was nervous stepping away for uh, several weeks uh, coming back. Like what would happen to the church? And I gave this, this encouragement, these words of Jesus to say, we found out what happens to the church is that Jesus will continue building his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And this is powerful truth that Jesus gives us that I wanted to highlight uh, and come back to again this week because I, I think there was a miscommunication along the way. So sometimes when we say things like the church, Jesus will build the church, we tend to think about it like, like all like this church, like the institutional church, like the bricks of the church or like encounter church. And we're going to say, yes, like Jesus loves the institutional church. But it's more than that because I think some of us miss the fact that that is true for you and I personally as well as corporately. So Jesus said, I will build my church. He's talking about you. He's saying, I will continue to build you. I will continue to invest and to pour into you. Because the same spirit that split the seas so that people could walk through on dry land, the same spirit that breathed the life into those dry bones of the valley, the same spirit that raised Lazarus from the dead lives inside of each one of us, of you. And so it's true that Jesus will build his church corporately. It's true that Jesus is going to build you personally as well. And that's like this profound truth that has almost nothing to do with the rest of the message at all. I just wanted to clarify that and offer that to you. And we're going to jump into the rest of the, uh, the rest of the message this morning. For the love, part two is this horizontal kind of love. We're talking this morning now on, uh, on loving and serving our community well. And this is, this is a season of, like I said last week, perspective gathering. And so I want to share, I guess, a little bit more of the perspective that I've been gathering. It's that I've, I've come to this, uh, this realization, I guess, is that the, the world pursues, the world pursues sameness and individuality. But the, that's different than what the gospel demands, because the gospel demands community and unity. Now, let me share, I guess, like what I mean by that is, is the, the difference between sameness and unity. Because sometimes they're almost like, like confused together. And we're led to believe that they might mean the same thing and they, they don't. Uh, the, the world pursues sameness and thinking that that's going to lead to unity, right? Like if, if we could just get so bifurcated in our echo chambers that everybody believes the same things as we believe, they speak the same way that I speak, they dress, they look the same way that I look. If, if only we could, we could find like, like a cluster or, or a community that was so like-minded enough in sameness that, that unity would start to become a result of that. And the gospel says, no, no, that's not actually the demand of the gospel. The gospel says, Revelation chapter 7, the end of the Bible, the end of the story, that all these nations, tribes, languages, and tongues are gathered before the throne in heaven. 
and declaring in a unified voice that salvation belongs to God. There's diversity there that leads to unity. Sameness does not lead to unity. So that's the first one. The world pursues individuality and sameness. The gospel demands community and unity. A perspective gathering, there's something that I've learned about individuality. Individuality is easy. It's so easy. You know, you know who's really remarkably good at individuality? Netflix. Man, they've got it dialed in. Just so long as none of my family members or extended family and friend network are bumming off my profile because I'm the, I'm the schlub who pays for this thing. You know, it's just as long as they're using their own profiles, when I turn on Netflix, like that feed is dialed in to all of the content and all of the shows that I want to watch. Netflix is awesome at this individuality customized experience. YouTube is awesome with this individual customized experience until my kid picks up my phone and starts watching YouTube and their shows and suddenly the algorithm is all kinds of messed up because there's like church worship videos combined with kids ninja champions. I mean, that's like confusing Silicon Valley like crazy. Who is this guy? <laughs> uh, social media, Facebook, Instagram, they got this thing, this individuality figured out. I mean, I've joked with you guys before that Listen, if you're having an identity crisis, like an existential identity crisis, wondering, who am I really? Just look at the ads on Instagram. They'll tell you who you, they know you better than you know yourself, right? I'm looking at like, what to wear, what kind of clothes to buy, and I'm like, I don't know. I don't have a sense of fashion. Instagram will tell me, you're the kind of guy that wears uh, shirts with palm trees on them. That's what, okay, I guess I am. I'm that guy now. Everything is dialed in to me individually. And listen, individuality is so easy. But community is better. And that's a hard sell. Individuality is so easy and community is so better. There's this, this is a saying that I, I love so much and I don't even know where it came from, but community, community has a unique, unique way of multiplying joy and dividing sorrow. You know, church, a true story. Earlier this week, I got a phone call that I won a grill. And I was ecstatic about it, right? I mean, I didn't even know I had entered a contest that would result in me winning a grill. But I got the call. Come on down. No sales pitch, you know, no forms or whatever. Just pick up your grill and, and like, see you later. And so, like, I tell my 8-year-old, my son, I'm like, dude, we won a grill. And he's like, cool, okay. And I'm like, no, this is a huge deal. We won, we won. And pretty soon he gets so into it. And he's like, we won, we won, we won. And we're both jumping up and down going, we won, we won, chanting. And we get down and we're like, whew, more tiring than it should have been. He looks at me, he goes, what do we win, Dad? <laughs> like that's how community works. That's how joy works. It doesn't even matter what we want. He's just along for the ride. And I get amped off from him getting amped. In church, this is, it's like this around here, man. We had a couple that stopped in last week, not for church, just to, which is, you know, bummer, but we just to share, like, hey, over the pandemic stuff, we got engaged, and I wanted to check in and just, and just tell you in person because it's that exciting. And I'm like, that is awesome. And community has a way of multiplying joys. 
hanging out at the barbecue last weekend in Fulton Heights was just, just awesome again one more time. And just connecting and hearing so many stories. What have the last few months been like? Hearing stories about promotions or like lateral moves with like upward potential. And it's just, it's super exciting. Community has this way. Multiplying joy. And dividing sorrow. Because there's hurt too. My God is their hurt. People coming through the doors, whether it's expressed or not, anxious and lonely and fearful. Kids that have hardly connected with a non-relative adult in over a year. We experience that with our kids, man. Like kids just not even knowing how to interact anymore. Like church kids that usually know kind of how this thing works. It's just everything is entirely new. And it, it's, it's hard. It's hard watching several marriages come to a conclusion or look that way. And when somebody comes through the door and you look at them and maybe without even totally knowing it, smile and say, I'm glad you're here. It's like a little bit of that hurt, a little bit, a pebble of that pain has been taken off and is now carried with somebody else. And it just makes life an ounce easier to live. And when enough people come alongside, man, the sorrow is divided. The joy is multiplied. That's the demand of the gospel. Community and unity amongst our differences. And it's community and unity that Jesus picks up this story. And he tells it in just such a way that, that if we weren't convinced that community and unity amongst our differences was important before, man, just listen to how he tells it. In Luke chapter 10, it starts off, and you can follow along, the words are, are in your Bible to take notes. Verse 25 of Luke 10, on one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, this, this kind of questioning is all sorts of flawed, right? What must I do to inherit eternal life? There's at least two that we'll spend a, a minute on here, at least two flaws. Number one is that he's really asking what the bottom is, like what's the baseline, what's the minimum? Okay, and this isn't so much like the, the Jesus thing. This is maybe, I guess, me talking. But in my 37 years, there's just some wisdom that I've gathered along the way. And the wisdom that I have for you is that you're, you're never going to really experience the best. God's blessed, relationship best. You're never going to experience the best of life by asking what the minimum contribution has to be, right? Like you go in for a job interview 
And maybe, maybe it goes well, right? You actually, you have prepared and you have good answers for the questions that are asked. And then the interviewers always look at you and they're like, okay, great. In the next, uh, in our final 32 seconds, do you have any questions for us? And imagine you turn and said, what's the minimum effort that I have to put in in order to like keep working here? However you thought that interview was going, it wasn't going well after that point, right? We know, we know that. Right? Guys, you gather up the courage to ask her out, and she says yes, and you're going out for dinner, and you're talking, and it's going well, and you're like, okay, what's like the minimum amount of attention that I have to give you in order for this relationship to continue? About, about that. I'll see you later. Okay. <laughs> Why would we think it's any different with God? Like, what, what do I have to do to have some kind of confidence that when I breathe my last, I'm going to see you on the other side? Now, you'll never experience God's best by constantly trying to figure out what the baseline, what the minimum is. I mean, there, there's a minimum uh, thing, there's, there's flaw there. At the same time, it, very practically, he's asking, what do I have to do? What do I have to do to inherit? What do you have to do to inherit anything? <laughs> you can't do something in order to inherit something. You're born into the family, and that's passed down. You can't do anything to earn it. It's just, it's given to you. I mean, so the, the point of the, is the thing here, she's like, if it's an inheritance, you've got to, own up to the fact that you were born into the family of God, that he picked you. Thank God he picked you, and you're in the family. Live into that more and more. What do I have to do? Okay, Jesus is going to answer these things, and he does so by telling a story to help him and the rest of us understand. Verse 26, what's written in the law, he replied. You want to know what the minimum is? What's written down? How do you read it? Verse 27, he answered, Two things. Number one, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind. Okay, vertical thing. Love God. Part one. And two, love your neighbor as yourself. This horizontal thing. You can see why I picked this. Verse 28. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you'll live. But this teacher of the law, he wanted to justify himself. And so he asked Jesus... Who is my neighbor? Now we're getting into it. Verse 30. Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. And they stripped him of his clothes. They beat him and went away. And they left him half dead. Now these three things. Uh, they stripped him of his clothes. They beat him. And they left him half dead. Maybe, maybe more than half. You know, we, it doesn't look good for the guy. Uh, keep those things in mind. If you're like a note-taker kind of person, right, like a dull pencil beats a sharp mind of remembering these truths, that one would be a good thing to highlight. That thing would be a good, uh, a good item to underline. Because there's, there are no throwaway details in the story that God tells. In fact, in fact, that'll preach pretty well, won't it? In your life, there's not any throwaway details in the story that God is telling through you. And this is no exception. He's writing these things down. He's telling the story in such a way that, that these details are going to be important. And we see those becoming important in verse 31 with what happens next. A priest happened to be going down the same road. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So to a Levite, when he came to the place and he saw him, 
He passed by on the other side. So there's two guys, priests and Levite. You might not know, like, culturally, like, who are these guys? Honestly, it doesn't really matter. What matters is that they should have known better. They, they were supposed to know better. They should have done better. You think about it like a pastor and a worship leader. Like, these, these, these guys should have done better. But they see this guy who's, what, stripped naked, beaten, and he looks half dead. Maybe more than that. I don't know. And they kind of, I just imagine them, like there's a hill or a mountain. I don't know why. But I just kind of imagine, like, they kind of do this around the, the, the body, the, the guy. They're socially distancing before that was, that was a thing, right? Staying away, like, oh, I don't know. Why? Well, the priest, he should have known better. He, he was asking himself, we know that he would have been asking himself, what does the law require me to do with this guy? It's unfortunate that we don't know. We could have known, but unfortunately, he was, he was stripped naked. So there's no, like, cultural markers on him to tell me which group he was a part of. We don't know if he's like me. We don't know if he's in my group. We don't know if he's the, he's the same as me. He's naked, huh? I mean, if he, if he wasn't half dead, if he wasn't unconscious, then he could have said something. He could have spoken. And when he opens his mouth, maybe, he's, maybe he uses the Syrian language. Then he's probably from Tyre, Sidon, Phoenicia, seafaring people. Maybe he spoke Greek. He could have been from the Decapolis. That's not my people. That's not same. I don't have to help him. Maybe he spoke Latin, Roman official. I definitely don't have to help him out. Or maybe he spoke Aramaic with just an accent of Hebrew on it. And then he's in my group. And I should help him. But I guess we'll never know, will we? Because he's half dead. And he's beat up. That is the worst part. Because the reputation of the robbers on the path, on the road between Jericho and Jerusalem, was that they were just trying to make an easy buck. They weren't looking for trouble. The reputation of the robbers, that they would pop out to unsuspecting probably individuals walking, not a part of a community. Rob them real quick and let the person get on with their day. The only reason why people tended to get beat up is because they did something wrong, because they resisted. And so it isn't a stretch of the imagination for the priest to walk by at his distanced pace and look at the guy and said, you know, he probably brought this on himself. What did he do wrong? He shouldn't have been out here all by himself. She shouldn't have gone there, worn that. It's easy to blame the victim in the story, and that's what the priest does. He walks by and says, oh, no, no, no. Beaten? That's on him. I don't have to help. Naked? Might not be a part of my group. Unconscious? He could, he could be dead. And if he's dead, oh, if the priest in the temple touches a dead body, get this, he has to quarantine for 14 days. This story has never felt so real. He can't go to work. He can't see his family. He's got to live in isolation. He's ceremonially unclean. The priest is going, if I touch him and if he's dead and then I'm unclean, the work of the temple grinds to a halt. 
You know, people can't offer their sacrifices. They can't get right with God. They can't give tithes and offerings. They can't distribute those things to the poor. Everything stops if I touch this guy and he's dead. I mean, what if he's not dead? What if he's alive and then he dies later on? And because I kind of knew him, I would be obligated to tear my clothes out of mourning grief for this guy I barely even knew and that's a destruction of against valuable property and that was against the law so like no no what's the easiest thing what's the best thing for me to do is just to just to slide right on by and to not engage there's a lot of reasons there's a lot of reasons why the priest and the levite don't engage don't do something there's a lot of reasons why the priest and the Levite don't step up and step in. What's yours? What's mine? Right? Because I get, I get the sense, don't, don't you? I get the sense that when we're reading this story, when Jesus is telling the story, he's doing one of these things, right, where he's like, he's talking to the teacher in the law, but, but really the teacher is like talking to you, you know, like in front of the classroom. I'm like, pay attention to this one. I think Jesus is talking to me. Why don't I step up and step in? <laughs> Just like with them, I can think of a lot of reasons. <laughs> maybe, maybe you resonate. I don't step up and step in because I tell myself that I'm going to, I will, later. <laughs> I'll get through it. I know it's important. I want to. Just not now. Just later. And we do this, we do this with everything, right? It's not just stepping up and showing up. We, we do this, we do this with, uh, with, with like a physical change, like swapping out the, the nachos for the garden salad, right? I'll, that's a good thing. I know I should. Just later. We do this thing with like kicking a bad habit, picking up a good godly habit. We'll get there. We want to. We just, you know, later, right? I'm going to get out of debt, I promise. You know, I got a plan and I wrote down my, you know, budget or cash flow or like whatever it is. I'm, I'm going to get on top of this thing just later. Someone once said that later tends towards never. And I love that. Uh, because God is a God of unity and God is a God who, when he creates, he doesn't always mysteriously separate some of his laws from the application in some other areas of life. Let me show you what I'm talking about. So he creates physically what Isaac Newton called the law of motion, right? An object at rest tends to stay at rest. An object in motion tends to stay in Unless acted on by some outward force, right? You got it. We know this. We know this, right? Stuff that's not moving tends not to move unless it, you know, somebody moves it. Things in motion tend to keep on going in motion unless there's some uh, exterior, external force on it. Like we know this, but the problem is we know this and it applies. We think it applies like just to one area of life. Like, well, that's how physics work. That's really good. Me and my spiritual life are totally different. I mean, God, he didn't create this law to apply in both areas, right? That would be pretty wild. That would really have to take some kind of genius of God on his part. And so when we're at rest, we tend to stay at rest. And that's when, that's when whatever the euphemism that we put on, it's a procrastination, it's delay, it's sloth, I mean, whatever the thing is, it'll just stay there. 
at rest. And it later tends towards never. But an object, in, an object in motion, like you've seen some motion, especially when there's, when there's maybe a literal mountain of potential energy just, just waiting to be harnessed, waiting to be tapped. Like the picture that I, the picture that I get is like this beautiful landscape, this, this snow-capped mountain. And you're like, wow, the rest but it's also potential energy because on top of that mountain is a tree and just like the littlest pine cone on that tree. And then the pine cone kind of falls off and lands on that, that pillowy softness on the top of the mountain. But, but that snow like, like pushes a little more snow and pushes a little more snow and pushes a little more snow. And then all of a sudden that potential energy turns into this actualized energy as this tsunami of snow and ice and weight comes crashing down the mountain threatening to swallow up and destroy anything that might stand in its path. And it starts with this pine cone and it's not going to stop. It's in motion. And I love that as a picture of what God is like putting in front of each one of us and saying, we get to be that pine cone gathering the momentum coming down the mountain and the energy that's picked up in the church along the way that's turning potential into actualized energy. It's so powerful. Okay, I will later. I tell myself that. I tell myself, ah, the place that I am is just so comfortable. Right? I won't want to step up and step in because, I mean, listen, I, I thought I have a hard time, like, leaving the house anymore. Right? 18 months of, like, staying in and you're all of a sudden like, this is just way too easy. It's way too comfortable. Like, imagine trying to explain the problem of a video buffer delay to somebody 100 years ago. And, like, the confused looks that you'd get. Like, seriously? Like, that's... You have so much comfort in life that, that like, that's the delay or that's the, the problems that, that you face. Some of you are like, I have tried to explain dial-up to my children. And, and it's like right there. Right? We're so comfortable. And that comfort kills calling. I will, just later. I'm so comfortable. And the last one is just, it's hard. Why don't we step up? Why don't I step up? And step in. Uh, because we're anxious. We're afraid. Or potentially vulnerable. And I want to acknowledge that as well. Like we, we fall in all kinds of different categories. And some of you may be watching online. You want to be here. You want to step up. You want to step into the community. But you're anxious. You're afraid. Or you're medically vulnerable. And there is and there's love, and there's patience, and there's hope, and there's encouragement, there's grace, and there's space until we can be together again. There's a few reasons that's what keeps me from stepping up and stepping in. Maybe in a moment of sobriety just between you and God, just ask him, like, what is keeping me pressed up against the side of the hill, not stepping up and stepping in to the guy in front of me? But Jesus doesn't leave us there. He continues on. Verse 33, the Samaritan as he traveled, came to where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. It's funny how words change over time. 
I looked this up in the uh, Macmillan Online Dictionary. The definition that they have for a Samaritan is, quote, someone willing to help someone out in a time of trouble. If that's what it means, that's not what it always meant. It was bad blood there. I mean, it started with the people going outside the community, intermarrying with this other group. It's religious ideas that kept getting mixed around. But, but the point was, there's bad blood between these guys. You know, they had a different temple, a different worship system. They had a different, pas- uh, a different Passover feast. They had a different translation of the Bible. They had an entirely different Pentateuch. They called theirs the New Living Translation. I'm just kidding. That was nothing against the New Living Translation. Just making sure we're all here. But they did have a different, a different Bible that they used. They're so different. The bad blood, the enmity between these guys. The Samaritans snuck into the Jewish temple one time and buried, hid dead bones and remains all around, just to desecrate it so that people couldn't, couldn't go to the temple. The, Samar- the Jewish people would come and end their prayers. You know, some of us end our prayers by saying, like, yeah, in, in Jesus' name, amen. Makes sense on his credibility, not mine. You know, a common way of Jewish people ending their prayers was, uh, and Lord, Please do not remember the Samaritans on the resurrection day. Amen. That's cold. That's harsh. Right? That's the the enmity, right? The sin between these two groups of people. And was someone willing to help somebody else out in times of trouble? That's what it means. That's not what it meant. What it meant is a Samaritan shows up. It might as well have been like Thanos or something like willing to help. Yeah, we know how that guy's willing to help. This is bad news. Okay, but the Samaritan shows up. Might as well have been as terrorist shows up. Verse 34. And he went to him and he bandaged the Samaritan, bandaged his wounds, pouring oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey. Picture this. Brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two coins, denarii, and he gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said. And when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense that you may have. I submit to you, church, that a Samaritan carrying presumably a Jewish person naked, beaten, and unconscious, half dead, through the streets between Jericho and Jerusalem was not a great look for a Samaritan. Like, it was dangerous to do that. Of great risk to personal harm, the Samaritan takes this on. In addition to that, he brings them to an innkeeper. We think, oh, an innkeeper, that's nice. An innkeeper probably has a master's degree in hospitality management and works at Courtyard by Marriott. No! No! Not the same thing. Culturally, an innkeeper was kind of a shady character. Like an innkeeper was, I mean, it was legal, but like some things that were done probably weren't legal. It was probably edging on on, on predatory, right? Like an innkeeper in those days were, were... it's probably like, like the cash advance store or like the pawn shop. And you're like, okay, I mean, it looks good, but there's probably some stuff going on. Yeah, yeah. And when the guy shows up, the Samaritan shows up with the half-dead guy and says, listen, here's a, couple, here's a little bit of money. And uh, look after him. I'm, I'm going to commit to paying the rest. The literal translation of that is, it says, I will reimburse you. The literal translation of it is, I pledge myself to repay. That's how it worked. It was like a pawn shop. I'll pay it. But instead of pawning his grandfather's fancy watch, he's pawning his own life. If I don't show up, you will come after me and take my life for his. 
Why, Samaritan, why would you do this? Why would you step up and step into something like that? Because the Samaritan gets something about loving his neighbor. The Samaritan understands something about serving and loving his community. The Samaritan understands that it is better to hurt with a purpose than to exist without one. And for a while now, thank you, we've been existing and just kind of floating without purpose. And we've just kind of been holed up to ourselves. And there's a thin line between between solitude and isolation. And we just start, start to drift kind of through life. And we don't want to step up and step in because, because it's dangerous. And the Samaritan shows us that it's better to hurt with a purpose than to exist without one. And the Samaritan isn't the only one to teach us that. I ride to church in the morning with my daughter. She's 10, and we're coming in, and we're talking about the story. And I'm trying to, like, explain the innkeeper thing. That didn't go over well. But I'm explaining to her, like, Jesus tells the story of a Samaritan guy who comes from a long ways away. And he pays the debt of the guy to heal up and get well. And what he offers as collateral in the story in order to see, see, it to see it through to the end is nothing short of his whole self. And I just love the way that Jesus writes himself into the story and says, I came from a long ways away to help out my natural born enemy because of the sin that stands in between us. And no matter what stands between at great risk of my own bodily harm I will step up and I will step in because it's better to hurt with a purpose than to exist without one and then Jesus again not talking to the teacher of the law he's talking to Dirk and he's talking to you too he ends the story with a question <laughs> which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers. Probably the one who had mercy on him. I don't even want to say it. Don't make me say it. And Jesus told them, go and do. Go and do. Go and do likewise. Go and do is an important phrase in the New Testament when Jesus speaks it. Go and do is a sentence structure that the Jewish people know, Hebrew people know, and the Old Testament is very common, and it carried over into the writing in the New Testament. Go and do is the sentence structure called a verbal hendiasis. That doesn't matter. Don't write that down. I had to learn about it in seminary, so now you have to learn about it today on Sunday morning. Go and do was a literary technique, a structure that the people used when they wanted to put a particular emphasis on an action. It means something like, hurry up and get it done. Do it right now. Don't delay. Don't wait. Don't sloth. Don't procrastinate. We got people to help. We've got a world to heal. Go and do. Get up. Hurry up right now. Let's move. In Jonah chapter 1, the word of the Lord comes to Jonah. Get up and let's get going. There's hurting people in Nineveh that need to hear about some good news for a change. Jesus, the last thing before he leaves in Matthew 25, 28, he says, go and make 
get up, let's move. Let's make disciples of all nations. Let's baptize them. Let's teach them what everything that I have commanded you. Let's go. Let's get up. Let's get moving. We're on the move now. I love this story when he's like, he's, he's, he turns to you and me and everybody. He says, there's hurting, broken, half dead, stripped, naked people in this world. And it doesn't matter if they're in our group or a different group. It doesn't matter if they're the same as you or totally different than you. Let's get up and get moving. Because there's a whole world that needs restoration. Let's go. And I love that message for us. Get up. Get moving. Because there's relationships that are ending. Because there's anxiety that's crippling. There's loneliness that's isolating. There's family, family members that have been ripped apart this last year. They don't talk to each other. A wake of relational destruction left behind them. Let's go, church. Let's get up. Let's get moving. Let's get moving. There's 2,791 people in the Fulton Heights community we've identified that don't know Jesus yet. Let's get moving. Let's put a church there. That'd be a good idea. There's work to do. Let's get up. Let's get physically. Let's get up. Let's get moving. I invite you to now rise. Amen. Let's get moving. We're moving, church. We're moving from death to life. We're moving from fear to faith. We're moving. Let's move before God right now in prayer. God, we pray to you today that this wouldn't just be a story that we heard in church, that this would be a story that's written on our hearts and that's life-changing. Spirit, may you move us. May you make us the, the, the pine cone that falls from the tree and begins an avalanche of grace ready to fill this entire world, to sweep it up in your love and your mercy, God. May we be that pine cone. God, we pray that this world of ours is changed by its encounter with you. Jesus, in your resurrection power. Amen.